I just need a little bit of space here to work with. Right, uh, so this is a sermon series that we're doing throughout the church, and uh, it's based on Acts chapter 17. And whenever I do expository preaching, I can't help but thinking it's a little bit like a comprehension test at school. You know, there's a passage that you read, and then you're meant to spot what the passage is and isn't saying, and be able to answer the questions correctly from the passage. So our passage today is Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read about three different cities where Paul is doing ministry. We start up in Thessalonica. Uh, Those are two maps, by the way. (laughs) of the same thing. We start in Thessalonica, then he moves down to Berea, and then finally we land up in in Athens. So uh, those are the cities, and that's where they are. Let's read the passage together. When Paul and his companions has passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away. This is because they get persecuted where they are. They go to Berea. That's our second city. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica, that's our top city, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And that's part of what he proclaims. Verse 25, he references one of their own poets. We are God's offspring. And he ends with, with a call to repentance. That, by the way, is Mars Hill, where the Areopagus was and where the people seemed to meet. So based on this passage, there are a number of things that, that I want to share with you. And there are ten points in all. And uh, some are a little bit longer than others. So, so the first point I want to share tonight, and, and this whole series is about helping you to share your faith with other people. And I want to, I want to encourage you and, and empower you by saying that there is no one right way to present the message of Jesus. When we, when we look at this passage, we see Paul sharing about Jesus in many different places. Sometimes he's in the synagogue. That's kind of like a Bible study. Sometimes he's in the marketplace where people are buying their vegetables. On one occasion, he hired a lecture hall and for many weeks gave public lectures about the Christian faith. He spoke to people one-on-one. -on -one. He speaks to people in groups. So we see there's, there's no one way to preach the gospel. And what we also see Paul doing, and this is so important, is that Whenever he talks to a person, he takes into account where that person is at spiritually and what their belief system is. And he tailor-makes a gospel presentation for that particular individual or group of people. He explains this concept to us in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, Though I am a free person and I can really do whatever I want, I, I curtail my own freedom. When I'm with Jewish people, I, I, I live under Jewish law and I do this so that I can win them. He says, when I'm with people who don't see themselves as under Jewish law, then I don't bring up the law. I don't, I don't live under the law. To the weak, I become weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. So Paul, so Paul adapts his presentation of the gospel, depending on who he's with. For example, when he's in the synagogues, like in Berea. Wow. <laughs> Is that better? You can see me now. When Paul is in Berea, and he's with Jewish people who believe in the Old Testament, then he quotes the Old Testament, and he uses the Old Testament to show them that Jesus is their Messiah. But when he's down in Athens, Paul uses a completely different approach to sharing the gospel. Down in Athens, nobody accepts the Old Testament as God's word. And so he doesn't really refer to the Old Testament. Rather, he, he argues from, from natural theology. And he uses logic. 
And he even quotes some of the, the poets of the day, the famous poets that they hailed and enjoyed. When I was younger, can we just turn the sound a little bit down, please, Luke? When, when I was, was earlier on in the days of being a Christian, we were taught how to share the gospel with people. We, we learned EE3, and this was like sheets of homework on all Bible verses you had to memorize, and there was a, there was a set way of explaining the gospel to people. I was also a great believer in the four spiritual laws. Um, there were just four lines that summarized what the gospel were. It started with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Number two, your life is messed up. You were a sinner or something like that. Number three, Jesus died on the cross for you. And then the, the, the awesome end point was, but it's not enough to know these things. You have to accept the Lord into your life. And we were told and and that's how we shared the gospel with people. But I've come to realize you cannot summarize the gospel in four propositional statements. When, when God wanted to explain the gospel to us, he inspired people to write four different books that we call the gospel. And then he inspired Peter and Paul and others to, to expound on the great themes of the gospel. It's not a weakness of the gospel that you can't sum it, sum it up quite so easily. It's, it's, it's testimony to the beauty of the gospel, to, the, to the, the extent of the gospel. Salvation is not just about getting someone's soul booked into heaven. Salvation is about God saving and renewing all of creation. That's the good news, which is the gospel. And so when Paul goes around, he, he, he shares different aspects of this big, amazing thing, which is the gospel. And he shares the part that whoever he's with most needs to hear. One of the little studies I've done in my life is to go through the book of Acts and identify every single time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. There are 22 accounts. And you will notice in the book of Acts, all 22 accounts of somebody presenting the gospel, they're all different. Hmm? How can that be? Didn't they know the four spiritual laws? Hadn't Paul done EE3 training as part of his kind of groundwork? One of the most stunning things out of that study was that I discovered that not once in the 22 accounts of the gospel being preached is God's love ever mentioned. And because some of you will find that hard to believe, all 22 accounts are on our church's Facebook page, so you can go and have a look at them. Lucky very kindly typed them out for me this week. Thanks, Lucky. There's no right way to preach the gospel. No easy way to sum it up. The gospel is a very complex thing, friends. Particularly when we're operating in a multicultural, multi-faith environment. Four spiritual laws just don't cut it anymore. 
Have you ever tried to tell a Muslim that God has a son? Have you ever tried telling a Jew that their Messiah is divine? Have you ever discussed heaven with a Buddhist? Discussed what sin is with a New Ager? Or tell a Hindu that Jesus is the only God? All of these concepts, what salvation is, who God is, what sin is, what heaven is, etc., etc. These are all profound concepts. This is why it sometimes takes missionaries 20 years before they make their first convert. This is complicated stuff. Which leads us to our next point. The good news is that when you share the gospel with, with people you'll find again and again that there are people that respond to the gospel message. We're all at church tonight, I hope, because we've responded to the gospel message. In all of these stories, remember we're doing a comprehension test, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, wherever Paul goes, there are those that say, yes, this, this is interesting, I want to hear more. There are always going to be people that will respond to the gospel, and the, the amazing thing is that we never know who it's going to be. But I can give you a tip as to who it's going to be. It's probably going to be the people that you least expect. <laughs> Jesus says it was, it was the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were corrupt people that worked for the state. These were the people that were most eagerly accepting Jesus' message. But the good people, they kind of weren't that interested, like the rich, rich young ruler and others. Another thing I see in our comprehension test, in our analysis of this passage, and if you read it carefully, this will stick out for you. In every single instance, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, we're told that there were women as well as men who responded to the gospel. And the point is made repeatedly that there were prominent women that responded to the gospel. Verse 4, verse 12, verse 34, it's mentioned in each account, and I believe it's significant. The message of Jesus really appealed to women. And I want to just reiterate the important role that, that women played in the ministry of Jesus. On this occasion in Luke chapter 8, we read that there were a group of women that traveled with Jesus and the 12 disciples. There was an entourage of women that 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 traveled from city to city with Jesus. Mary was there. Joanna was there. Joanna was the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. These, these are high society women, powerful women, well, Joanna is. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I think that's sometimes lost in us, that it was a group of women that financially supported Jesus and his disciples. Just as there are always going to be those that do respond to the gospel, not in every group, every time, but God's calling people to himself. That's why we share the word, because we never quite know who it's going to be. 
But there's also always going to be opposition when the gospel is preached. And in each of our stories, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, we, we read about people ganging up on these Christians. Some bad characters are rounded up. They form a mob and start a riot. At Berea, the people from Thessalonica arrive and agitate people, stir up the crowds, cause trouble. When Paul is in Athens, we read that people sneered at Paul, mocked him. Persecution has always been part and parcel of gospel sharing. From Stephen, the first martyr that we read about in Acts chapter 7, Saul was there. Persecution. There are many different forms of persecution. There's persecution that happens in, in Western countries. And I don't know how many of you read this report in the, in the, in the paper this weekend. But the high court in, in South Africa on Friday, I believe it was, has told the Dutch Reformed Church that they have to accept practicing homosexuals who are living with people of their same gender as ministers in their church and that they have to solemnize gay marriage. Friends, don't get caught up on that this is a small issue. This is not a small issue. And I'll tell you what it is. There is a principle involved here. There is a line that has been crossed where the secular state, through the judiciary, is now defining for the Christian church what sin is and what sin isn't. And for the state to take that on themselves is unacceptable. And sadly, the Dutch Reformed Church at this stage of the game is not going to appeal the judgment. Up until a few weeks ago, the government was also telling Christian parents that they cannot spank their toddlers, but they've seen the light and backed off. So parents, you have the go-ahead. But you cannot negotiate with a two- or three-year-old. Sometimes a loving smack on the bottom is all that's needed to turn that child into the wonderful human being you want them to become. <laughs> the government is also legislating on hate speech now. There's a strong move to be able to prosecute people that say things like homosexuality is a sin. They want to be able to fine you, and if you do it more than once, throw you in jail. And it's already happening in countries like Canada. There's also a commission in this country. Their, their, their role constitutionally is to protect the rights of churches and uh, cultural groups and the like. But they're actually wanting to register and control what gets preached from pulpits. Can you believe it? This ANC government actually wants pastors 
to submit the sermons that they're going to preach to some committee that's going to vet them. And they want to license people like myself and then control me. And again, it sounds, well, their motives are good. They don't want me to spray doom in people's faces. We get that. But there are principles here about separation of church and state and the like. But it's not just in South Africa. I wonder how many of you saw this viral video of this brother preaching the gospel in London, not being a nuisance, police coming and arresting him. This is a Christian country. And then there's persecution outside of the West and democratic societies. There's persecution in Islamic societies. And what happened in New Zealand Friday week ago is truly horrific. And it made front page news and rightly so around the world. But Christians and Christian churches are getting burnt to the ground regularly. And, and you'll never hear about that. So when we preach the gospel... There are going to be people that are offended by what we say. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Expect it. Another thing I see in this passage is Paul working as a team. And I sometimes think that we think evangelism is something that I need to do on my own. Well, Paul went around in a group of people. And there's, there's a bit of courage that comes from being in a group, is there not? We read in this passage that Paul and his companions, he's, he has support. He's not out there alone. And I believe one of the best ways for us to evangelize in our current society is by Christians getting together and throwing dinner parties where we invite people that don't know the Lord to come into our houses and to experience Christian fellowship and to meet credible, authentic believers. Powerful stuff. Why do we think we always need to be doing it on our own? Let's, let's work together. Another thing I see in this passage is that Paul did evangelism just by getting on with what he was doing anyway. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue. When God calls us to share our faith, he's not always causing us, calling us to do something different. He's just calling us to share our faith where we are. If you're at school for a lot of the time, well, that's your mission field. If you're at university or work or wherever it is. I was going to say out in a field somewhere by yourself, but of course that wouldn't work. But we do mission wherever we are. Yes, God does call us sometimes to cross boundaries and to go to other places, and that's well and good. But typically, we, we, we are witnesses where we are. I see in this passage, too, that sharing about Jesus is a, is a multifaceted thing. It's not just sit down for five minutes while I tell you the four spiritual laws. There's more to it than that. Paul sometimes spent weeks trying to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. He went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, that means over three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. 
Here are some of the activities of evangelism. There are much more. But sometimes we've got to reason with people. Non-Christians tend to believe some crazy stuff. We need to understand the crazy stuff they believe and be able to pick it apart graciously sometimes. We need to be able to reason with people and the truth will always be on our side. Sometimes people aren't believers because they just don't know enough. That's when we've got to explain to people more about the gospel. Where people accept the scriptures, we can prove that Jesus must be the Messiah. Sometimes we just proclaim. That's when you don't rationalize, prove, dispute. You just say. You just proclaim. I want to say something quickly about the place of signs and wonders because I think in this church we hear a lot about signs and wonders and how important they are in, in doing evangelism. I want to say that Jesus actually played down the roles of signs and wonders in people coming to faith. Remember the example of the rich man and Lazarus in about Luke chapter 16. And uh, the rich man finds himself in hell, which is not a good place to be. And, and he's having this debate, and Jesus is telling the story, and the man says, Jesus, but, but can't one of my brothers, who are also here in hell with me, can't one of them go back from the dead, be resurrected from the dead, and then my brothers will believe? And Jesus says, no, that won't, that won't work. A miracle of someone coming back from, from the dead, that, that's not going to persuade anyone. Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets let that be their guide. Also, when Jesus has himself experienced a resurrection and he's walking down the Damascus road and he meets some people and now he wants to witness to them and he wants to persuade them that the Messiah Jesus has been resurrected, you would think the easiest thing in the world would be to lift up his garments and say, look here at this miracle. Look at my hands. I've res I'm resurrected from the dead. But Jesus doesn't do that. He starts with the, the, the book of Genesis. And he works through the whole of the Old Testament, showing them that the Messiah must have been resurrected. Instead of just saying, da-da, here's a miracle. Most people that I know who have become Christians have not become Christians because they've seen a sign or a wonder. And my fear is that we can feel disempowered or feel ineffective in evangelism if we're not doing amazing miracles for people. Point eight, how much do we really care? We read that when Paul is in Athens, that he was greatly distressed. I want us to focus on that phrase, greatly distressed. Unfortunately, Christians tend to get highly worked up or highly offended. Those are very different to being greatly distressed. 
And I believe this is important. When we see people who aren't worshiping God, who are living lives that, that aren't the way God created them to live, that should greatly distress us. We should be distressed when God is not being worshipped by people that were created to worship Him. We should be distressed by the pain and suffering that people experience when they base their lives on that which is in truth. We should be distressed when we know people are going to hell. We should be distressed when people aren't enjoying a relationship with God. Paul also said in Romans 9, when I think of the Jewish people, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I wish that I myself could be accursed if that would help. Friends, as Christians, we need to get, be less offended by what people say and do. Be less judgmental, but rather a whole lot more anguish born of the Holy Spirit in our hearts for people. Point nine, moving on. When Paul finally gets to the Areopagus, he's, he, he reveals that he understands them. He doesn't say, you heathen, let me set you all right. He says he's complimentary. I see that in every way you are very religious. His tone is warm. That's a good thing. Let me help you on that journey that you're already on, he says. I see you have an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that thing that you already sense in your heart but, but are ignorant of. As I've said earlier, he's able to quote the own Greek prophets, as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. So he ties in his gospel message to what is culturally accepted and appropriate. Paul demonstrates a great understanding and appreciation of culture. That's probably in all likelihood the altar to an unknown God that's been unearthed. But do we truly understand where people are at, what people believe already, what their doubts are? What is the foundation for what they believe? Paul had an uncanny ability to find common ground to peop with people. The picture I, I got from the Lord, I believe, is that when we talk to people, if you really get to know them, you'll see there's a puzzle piece missing in their heart, in their life. There's like a hole, there's a gap. It's a particularly shaped gap. And as, Christ, as a Christian, do you know how to offer that exact piece for that puzzle that's going to make all the difference for that individual? That's what Paul's doing here. He, he sees there's this gap, this, this desire to, to cover all their bases, to worship the unknown God. Paul says, that's what I want to talk to you about. And finally, every gospel presentation in the New Testament tends to be about calling people to repentance. Do you know that? Like I said in Acts, they never say, God loves you so much. Please become a Christian. Please give God a chance. No biblical author ever presents the gospel like that. 
The love of God is never some bait that we can experience that guides us to become a Christian. I mean, you might think you can do it better than Paul and the apostles did. I'm just telling you how they did it. <laughs> this is Paul's plea now at the Areopagus. In the past, God overlooked ignorance. But now he commands, not asks, not begs. He commands all people everywhere to repent. And he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And then most gospel presentations in the New Testament always include something about the resurrection of Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Calling people to repentance was such a key part of the gospel that the gospels start with the phrase, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. All gospel present, let me not say all because I haven't checked it out. Most gospel presentations include repent. What does Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? They say, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> repentance is always up there front and central. And repentance is such an important part of the gospel because it is sin that is the problem. And repenting of sin in the power of God is what salvation is all about. So much so that the gospel was even referred to as the gospel of repentance. And when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again. Some believed. Also a woman named Damaris. Well, I hope I've shed some light on sharing the gospel with others. So go out and do it this week. And uh, you can tell me how it, how it went next week. Lord, you've said to us, go and make disciples of all nations, not just the people that think like us. You said, I will make you fishers of men. You want us to catch people like a fisherman catches fish. You said to us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. In your hometown, in the next suburb, in the next province, to the uttermost ends of the earth. Lord, may we experience the kind of anguish that Paul experienced. Help us to become distressed when we see people living lives that are far from what you desire of them. And Lord, may we be privileged to see many people coming to know you, Lord, coming into the kingdom through your working through us. We just submit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that you'd, you'd guide us to those people that you want us to witness to. That you'd give us wisdom and discernment to be able to see the, the missing puzzle pieces in their hearts. 
Help us to be able to adapt the gospel message for each person that we meet. And we do this for your glory alone, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us stand as we worship together.